Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I sat down with the gregarious Chris Pogue from Newix, and I absolutely loved this conversation about his tenure in the industry and his thoughts towards certain topical conversations. We discuss leadership and his beliefs on where the industry is headed and where he believes we need to be. Chris touches on his book that he's currently writing, as well as his coaching for CISOs and how he helps them evolve as leaders. If you're keen to learn more about Chris and his thoughts, then this episode is for you, so please keep on listening. So, Chris, you and I spoke a few months back. We were actually supposed to meet in Sydney in person, but then, of course... COVID happened and you had to fly back to the US. So I can totally understand and appreciate that that was a thing that you had to do. And when we did speak, you you mentioned a lot of things that I personally think about and a lot of the viewpoints that I share as well. So I'm really keen to get into those. But before we get into your experience, I'd really love for you to talk to our audience about your journey. So can you start off to tell our listeners about where you started to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's an, it's an honor to be one of your guests. And so hopefully what we have to go over will be valuable in someone else's journey. So my journey into the IT space began oh, about 23 years ago uh, as an artillery sergeant in the United States Army. Uh, a whole lot of fun making things go boom. Not a lot of jobs uh, on the market for explosive specialists. And my wife, uh, really not a big fan of, of explosives and firearms, wanted me to find a job that I wouldn't uh, have an opportunity to uh, to detonate myself or uh, get shot. And, and so we really looked into IT, and I, so I reflagged um, in the Army, right? That just means I changed jobs. Um, I moved into what's called the civil core. It's not entirely dissimilar than the ASD. But it is, uh, it's more of a communications branch of the Army as opposed to intelligence. Um, and so I really got into IT at that point, making systems work, you know, communications, et cetera. But then I got this really neat opportunity to work at IBM and uh, apply for a position within their penetration testing team. Right? So I, I, I applied, I got the job, and I, I was a, an ethical hacker. Right? It's, it's the time that that was what it was called. It became known as penetration testers, but we... We broke into systems and we told people how we broke in and, and uh, you know, then, then helped them um, you know, shore up those security vulnerabilities. From there, I moved. I uh, wasn't a very good pen tester. You know, usually their uh, frame of reference is a bit, a bit more creative than mine. I'm, I'm a very linear thinker, unfortunately. With a military background, I was much better suited for forensics. So I moved into the forensics team. I uh, had a deep understanding of how systems work, as well as how hackers worked, and so I actually became a pretty good forensics investigator. Ended up writing two books on the subject. Uh, spent 13 years forensics investigator with the U.S. Army, IBM, Trustwave, and uh, I was on special assignments during my time at Trustwave to the United States Secret Service. So I got the opportunity to train. Um, the Secret Service and what's called their Electronic Crime Special Agent Program, also an expert witness um, in prosecutorial cases for the Secret Service. And I got to be an adjunct professor of cybersecurity, teaching investigative methodology in, in cybersecurity at Southern Utah University in the U.S. And so then I got to, the opportunity to come work at Nuix. So instead of addressing individual cases, now I get to help design software that investigations, organizations, law enforcement, intelligence, uh, and law firms use all over the world. So really fun journey. This is my favorite part of it, why I'm at today. 
Mm-hmm. That's a well, kind of large sort of journey that you've had. And talk to me a little bit more about when you move from the military into corporate. To be honest, I've had a lot of people on our podcast, in particular in the US, who have been previously in the military and they've sort of moved into more of a corporate sort of role. And it's definitely been an interesting journey for a lot of them, but I'm really keen to hear yours. Yeah, it's a, it's a unique challenge to move from the very linear thinking of, of the military, which is very hierarchical, task-oriented, and then getting into you know software industry or, or just private industry in general, where that level of rigidity isn't necessarily given the same level of deference that it is in the military. And, and so the challenge becomes how do you adjust fire, right? How do you take what you've learned and apply it to a completely different corpus of, of data to become relevant, right? And, and so one of the things I, I learned quickly was adaptability and flexibility are, are tantamount to being successful as a civilian. Uh, and, and so that, that has held true over my entire civilian career. And, and I think it's really a, a missing element with a lot of, of professionals is, you know, I've, I've frequently heard the statement, well, I wasn't hired for that or that's not my job. Right. It's, it's, it makes my skin crawl every time I, I hear it, as opposed to having, you know, a continuous growth mindset and looking for ways to increase your, you know, your knowledge, your skills and, and be able to provide an, an ever growing value to the organizations that you work for. And so that kind of perspective changes, you know, the way you approach as you make that transition. Uh, you know, from the military, as opposed to saying, this is what I'm going to do because this is what I did in the military versus thinking I, I learned how to adapt, improvise and overcome. And I'm going to apply that skill set. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, when you and I spoke, we, we discussed your experience about working in a senior position, including being a CISO. And we talked quite in depth about sort of how people traditionally came up through the ranks to becoming a CISO, but then you also sort of raised some areas of improvement that need to happen. So can you discuss your thoughts on this? Yeah. So in, historically, um, there's there's been a, a few different paths to becoming a CISO, right? There's there's the, the technical path where you are a technician, right? You are you're adept in you know, security you know, protocols and technologies. And, and so you move your way up into the executive ranks uh, by displaying some leadership and capabilities as an executive. And, and so you become a CISO, right? The, the advantage there is that you understand the way the technology and play together. The disadvantage is that you don't speak the same language as the rest of your executive colleagues. I, I knew very little about things like finance, P&L sheets, sales strategies, go-to-market strategies, because I was so singularly focused on security. And, and so I was at a disadvantage with, with the rest of my colleagues. Um, I could go deep on what I knew, but my level of understanding about what they knew was, was very shallow. Um, and so that's a challenge for CISOs that enter the executive ranks through that path. Um, but it's not insurmountable, right? I was, I was able to overcome it and after you know, three or four years of, of kind of intensive study. The, the second way is that you're an executive in another discipline. Um, you're a general counsel, you're a chief risk officer. And so cybersecurity is seen as another, you know, just another aspect of IT or of risk. And so they put it under an existing executive. Right? So the benefits there are that you understand how executives think and work and, and how to associate um, different levels of risk and the appetite that the organization has. The disadvantage is that you know uh, usually precious little about the technology, about how they actually play together, what different you know, terminology means, and, and how all those things combine to provide a defense in depth 
you know, strategy for an organization, right? So there's kind of risks or rewards to both. And then the third is that you don't know a whole lot about either of them, but you find yourself in the role of a CISO. Uh, believe it or not, we've actually seen this happen many times. You may have a, a sales background, or you may have just been in the right place at the right time, or because of the um, size of the organization and the, and the maturity um, isn't quite what it is in, in bigger companies, you you end up in a, in a senior leadership position without much leadership experience or cybersecurity experience. Um, and so that's obviously the most dangerous and the most frightening um, because you don't know what you don't know and, and you end up you know, kind of making some, some basic mistakes along the way. I was pretty fortunate that I understood the tech first. I had my master's degree in information security. Having been a pen tester and a forensics investigator, I understand how breaches work. I've watched organizations um, in by the hundreds go through you know, data breaches and, and kind of fumble around and not really know how to, how to respond and then how to take the lessons learned and apply them to their security strategies. So I was at a, a bit of an advantage in that regard. Um, but the other aspect, and, you know, as I said, I had to learn everything else about being an executive. And uh, so that was, it, it took a few years, but I, I eventually got to the point of uh, reasonable proficiency. So where would you sort of say the sweet spot is? Because you sort of spoke about three different areas of how people have gotten to be a CISO. Where would you say would be the best fit in terms of overall performing that type of function? I think it's a combination, right? Personally, I think that having the in-depth knowledge of how the security technologies work is absolutely vital, right? Because without that knowledge, it's very easy to make some pretty basic mistakes um, about how to protect your organization, what things are important, how to prepare for, you know, regulatory compliance or GRC oversights, right? Those are, those are all pieces of the equation that you learn as you come through the ranks. But then that, where that sweet spot, I think, resides and where we need to do a better job is, is incorporating the other aspects of the business into that educational process of those people that are on that journey. Right. So don't wait until you become a CISO to have a conversation with your CFO and understand how departmental accounting works, how good market strategies work, how P&L sheets work, how does your budget factor into the larger budget? Um, how do you equate, you know, the, you know, the risk appetite of your organization? How does that determine what your budget looks like, how much you have to spend, et cetera? Um, you know, likewise for other parts of the business, right? How do you operationalize the strategy, what part does security play in that role, right? So all of those different pieces of how an organization uh, goes to market, how it makes money, how it you know, drives revenue, how it maintains you know, sustainability are, are all absolutely vital for any executive to understand, especially the CISO who doesn't historically live in that space. Um, so the, the more you're able to converse in the language of your colleagues, the easier it becomes to advance you know, the security um, strategies and the, and the plans that, you know, CISO lays out because you're not talking bits and bytes and ones and zeros and firewalls and apples and, and things that nobody else really care about, but you understand what it is that they care about, right? Very Dale Carnegie. And then how do you translate that into, into a, a language then that your peers understand what you're trying to achieve and, and then you can, you can go forth and do those things with some kind of minimal resistance. One of the things that you and I did speak about was uh, technical people sort of maybe starting off as a systems engineer, and I've spoken about this multiple times, working their way up through the ranks, and then all of a sudden they're now a leader, they're a CISO, but then you and I sort of discussed in terms that they sort of just got there by default. Would you say that 
that's majority of people at the moment who are holding these types of positions that have there's kind of been no one else around to take that position. And then all of a sudden, Joey is the only guy that they've got and he just has to become the CISO. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say what the percentages are uh, because there's some fantastic CISOs that are very, very well equipped. And, and there's there's some that are kind of in the middle and then there's some that are completely ill-equipped. So I think without knowing the exact, you know, the exact breakdown, <clears throat> it's probably more than would make any of us comfortable, right? And I think the data breach statistics uh, are, are part of that, right? You can see that, you know, by and large, most organizations aren't great at protecting themselves. And that's corporate government banking. It's, it's kind of industry agnostic in that regard. And you can't lay the blame squarely on the CISO's shoulders, mm-hmm. right? Because he has other executives, he has to liaise with, he's got a board, he's got to convince, um, you know, for his budgetary plans and his objectives. And those, you know, are then, you know, contradiction or alignment with what the you know, rest of the executive team wants to do. So it is a, it's certainly a piece of the equation, but, but not the equation in its entirety. And, and so I think when, and if you find yourself in that, in that position, um, you have to kick into kind of an ultra learning mindset and, and go find as much information as you can, right? And understand what your rate determining step is, uh, you know, with respect to what is the skill that you're lacking <clears throat> that in learning it will, will propel you forward and in not learning it is holding you back the most. Is it, is it finance? Is it, you know, you know collaboration? Is it understanding go to market strategies? Is it sales? Right. There's whatever that piece is that you lack the most, learn that first, and hopefully that will accelerate the rest of your learning. Um, and find someone else that's further down the path. Right. Find a mentor, find a coach, find someone who can help you navigate those waters. Because uh, it's not easy. There's lots of CISOs, and there's lots of them that aren't doing all that hot. And, and I don't think it's a function of intelligence or capability. I, I just think it's a function of experience, of humility, and being able to put yourself in a position where you're ready and willing to, you know, to learn from your peers, to learn from someone further down the path, and apply those things immediately into your uh, into your role. There are companies out there that you've probably already seen that are sort of providing training from a leadership perspective. My question to you would be, one, what do you think of them? But then number two would be, I believe that certain people are sort of born better to communicate than others. So do you sort of think people should just stay in their lane? And do you think a lot of these skills can be trained to the best of their ability to be influential? Yeah, I, I absolutely think you can. And I'll, I'll use myself as an example, right? When when I uh, when I was younger, I was a horrible communicator. Um, I, I couldn't read out loud. I stuttered terribly. Um, and in fact, I went to speech therapy uh, all the way through high school. Um, and, and so I learned how to communicate and I learned how to present and I learned how to increase my vocabulary so I wouldn't you know, stutter on words and or get to the point where I wanted to say something I didn't have the vocabulary necessary to communicate those those facts. So so I absolutely believe that communication is a learned skill. I think most people aren't good at it because they don't practice it. Um, but I don't think it's a it's a limiting factor. And there's you know like any skill, some people have a propensity for it, right? And and some don't. It requires hard work. But there's there's a strategy. Um, there's uh, you know different ways to communicate, and it's it's definitely something that that anyone can pick up, whether it makes them comfortable or not as relevant, they can learn it. And so I think from a training perspective, to kind of answer your first question, is I haven't been to any of those classes, so it's hard for me to quantify. I just I know in, in my role as a professor, I, I interact with my students and my peers, and, and I've, I've guest lectured at universities all over to include Australia. And 
where we see the biggest breakdowns aren't in technology, right? It's, it's not in a student's ability or a young executive's ability to grasp the technology. It's in their ability to communicate, right? How do they communicate with their peers? How do they communicate up? Uh, how do they communicate to the board, to the executives? And being, and that is both written and verbal communication, right? As a, as a you know, former investigator, I would read the reports of my peers, or as an expert witness, I would read the reports of other investigators. And it was great data, but it was just communicated in such a haphazard and, and clumsy way that it was. It took so much effort to read through it uh, to find the information that was necessary to do you know, whatever it is I was trying to do. So I think if we could adjust fire on the educational programs that we have, it's not just the acquisition of of the knowledge within the field, but then it's communicating that in a meaningful way to a target audience that probably has no idea what we're talking about, right? So it's really understanding what is that language that they speak? How do you translate what you're trying to get across into a language that they can understand and grasp, uh, and then doing that in a, you know, in a, in, in a meaningful way that, that, that helps you achieve whatever the outcome is you're looking for. Would you say that people are wanting to learn how to communicate? And I ask this only because there's still this stigma in the industry that quote unquote soft skills aren't so important. Yeah, I just cringe when I hear that because unless unless there's a robot uprising and, and we no longer have to communicate, right? Despite what Black Mirror tells us, that, that hasn't happened yet. Um, and so I will argue vehemently that that is not a soft skill. That is an absolute core competency. Uh, I have yet to see a job in a software or in any industry rather where communication was not essential. You will always have someone who's reading your reports, um, someone who's reading your emails, um, someone you have to convince to give you budget to do the things that you want to do. So you are always communicating and you are always selling. Right? It's another thing that, that I hear that, that makes me cringe is, is when people say, well, I don't, I don't understand sales. I'm not, I'm not a sales person. And, and, and my retort is everybody is, sells everything every day. Whether you're, you know, dealing with your partner or whether you're dealing, you know, with, with someone on a, on a business development call or you're trying to get your, you know, your boss to agree with you and, and give you some budget to do some stuff, you are selling. And, and so I think those skills are far more important than we give them credit for. And we have so many students coming out of programs that, that think that their knowledge of the subject matter is sufficient to allow them to be successful. When it's really kind of the baseline, right? It's the equivalent of the you must be this tall to ride this ride. Um, everybody should have this degree of, of um, technical you know, capabilities within those roles. What really sets apart the, the good and the great from the, you know, from the average is their ability to communicate with others within the organization and outside of the organization. I totally agree with you. So I hear all of your points, which I agree with, but then why do you sort of feel that people still go on about like, that person's not technical, I'm technical, and it's sort of a lot of that talk, but then it's very dismissive to people that can communicate and influence. Do you think it's they feel threatened by that or they feel intimidated? Uh, no, I think it's intellectual hubris. One of my pre well, a couple of my previous roles, I, I managed large teams of both penetration testers, researchers, and, and forensics investigators. And these are people, by and large, who their identity is founded um, in their uh, intellectual capabilities. So being the smartest person in the room isn't just something that they feel like they need to do or want to do. It is so deeply ingrained in their success criteria 
um, that they've grown up in the industry with that it's 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 just it's a part of who they are. I, mean, I, I had it as well, right? It's you don't mean to have it, but you're in an industry where you know if you think about being in professional sports, right? Who's the fastest? Who's the strongest? You know, who can kick the ball the hardest or hit the ball the hardest or whatever sport you're in. That becomes the the measuring point of capability and success in an industry here where it's it's dominated by tremendously intelligent people, right? You have to assume that that kind of competitiveness just shifts from physical prowess to intellectual capability. And, and so it is absolutely within this industry, the same way it is in the legal industry and in the medical industry, these are some of the smartest people in the world and, and, and they are at the top of their game, right? These are the equivalent of professional athletes who have a hubris about their intellectual capabilities. And it, it becomes something uh, of a sense of pride. And it also introduces that uh, almost an adversarial relationship of I am better than you because I'm smarter than you. And which is, which is fine. You want that kind of competitive nature because if you're a hacker, you need to outsmart the defenders. If you are a forensics investigator, you have to outsmart the hackers. If you're a malware researcher, you have to outsmart the malware developers, right? So it's, it's a constant balance between, I want you to have enough of that competitive nature that you've got an edge. Uh, but I also want you to understand that it's not binary. It's not a zero sum game. Right? It's, it's not that I am smarter than Carissa, therefore Carissa must be less smart than me. We can both be smart and we can both attack problems in a collaborative way and benefit from each other's experience and wisdom as opposed to it being, you know, you know, a, an either or type situation. I hear you. So how do you think that we sort of change the conversation of, like you said, it's not a zero sum game. The technical guy isn't smarter than the person that can speak. The person who can speak isn't smarter than the technical guy. How do you think we can sort of operate in unification towards this problem? Yeah, it's there's there's tons of analogies, right? I played American football when I was growing up. Um, and, and so, you know, using a sports analogy, using American football, everyone on the team can't be the quarterback. And, and everyone on the team can't be a lineman. And everyone on the team isn't a wide receiver. Everyone has skills. And everyone has abilities for which they are uniquely gifted. And a team is, is not those individuals playing as individuals, but taking the skills and the abilities that they have and combining them to create something that they couldn't do individually. Right? One of my favorite parts of, of my role uh, you know, presently at UX is I'm, I'm the head of uh, what's called Partner Connect. So I, I oversee um, the, our partnerships around the world. And, and so the most compelling part of that is the fact that a successful partnership is when two organizations come together to create something unique that neither one can do on their own. And, and so this, this concept of building these high-powered teams doesn't mean I have to do what you do or you have to do what I do, but it's what do we do together that in that collaboration, we bring something to the table that we couldn't achieve on our own. And that's when you see the greatest teams come together, whether it's sports teams or companies or, or you know, marriages or whatever the case may be, is when the individuals involved in that realize that the true potential doesn't reside in their individual capabilities, but in the, in, but in the capabilities that the team creates through collaboration. So I think if we start to shift the mindset of, yeah, we want you to be who you are. And we want you to bring what you bring to the table every day and bring it hard. But that doesn't mean that the guy next to you or the girl next to you doesn't have something that she brings that's every bit as valuable, that's every bit as important. It's just different. And in those differences, 
is where we find the, the wild card, right? It's the, the, this, the, the unique way of thinking, the creative um, component that is, is going to launch the business forward or the team or the marriage or whatever. So, Chris, from a technical level aside, what do you honestly believe is sort of lacking at this level but right now, just in your experience? Like what can people sort of, after they listen to this podcast, what are some things they can take away that they can improve on? Well, I think the first thing is, I don't want to say the most important, right? Because I think these are all important, so in no particular order. Uh, you know, number one, leave your ego at the door. Uh, you know, if, if you truly seek to improve yourself and improve your capabilities and improve your position, you, you have to embrace a position of humility where approach situations as if you, you don't know everything. You know, you're missing information um, and it's probably more complex than you think it is. Right. And, and it doesn't mean you have to come across as stupid. It doesn't mean you have to come across as, you know, being ignorant. Right. It's more Socratic. It's it's asking questions. It's making sure you understand it so deeply that you can explain it to a lay person. Right. So I think that's that's kind of step one is is uh, adopt that position of humility um, and don't think that, that now is the time to let up. Right. Now is the time to put the gas on. Right. There's a there's a great book called Relentless well, by Tim Grover, who used to be um, Michael Jordan's personal trainer. Right? So it's, a, it's a fascinating book. But the, the concept is players who would get to the NBA would think I've arrived and, and they would back off. And so if you take that example and you, you shift it over to the executive ranks, becoming a leader is when you should put the gas on. And, and this isn't the time to coach and, and to kind of rest on your, on your laurels, but this is the time to suck up as much information as you can because you have a fiduciary responsibility, right? You wear what's called the mantle of leadership now, which if you, if you, you know, picture the, the image of that, literally sitting on a leader's shoulders to be as good as they can be, to learn as much as they can, to provide as much value to their organizations as they can is everyone within that organization that is relying on you to lead them and to lead the organization are kind of banking on your abilities to to make good decisions and to be wise in your judgment and in your counsel. Right. So that's that's kind of number two. And then I think the third one is find a mentor, right? Find someone who's further down the path that can guide you. Um, that you can ask questions to, that you can be in a safe environment where you don't got to feel like you're asking something stupid or there, there's tremendous value in, in having a mentor that has been where you are just a bit further down the path um, that can share, you know, their wins and wisdoms and, and how it is that they circumnavigated the challenges they have and, and how did they get to where they are. Um, I, I'm very, very fortunate both to have a, an executive coach who is absolutely fantastic uh, and a boss that's been in the industry for more than 40 years who is very kind uh, enough to, to share all of his information you know, with me and all the wisdom he's gained over the years. Um, and then the last piece of that is the application of that wisdom. Right? I, I heard once that it's easy to mistake 10 years of experience for one year of experience repeated 10 times. Uh, because you're not extracting the wisdom from those experiences that you should to really give them the value um, that they should have in, in your life and, and in changing your perspectives. So experience is not a function of time. And, and experience isn't the best teacher. Wisdom is the best teacher that has to be extracted from the experiences you go through so that you can then apply that back to your, you know, 
back to your life in a meaningful way and in your leadership you know, capacity in a meaningful way so that you get better. And, and every day is, uh, you know, you're on this, this journey to, to improve incremental improvement as, as, as John Maxwell calls it, um, where you're, you're better yesterday than you were today and you're going to be better tomorrow than you are right now. So, uh, or the way around, sorry, you're better today than you were yesterday, better tomorrow than you are today. Mm-hmm. So speaking of mentors, you mentioned that you're you, yourself, you're doing some coaching for CISO. So talk to me a little bit more about this. It's a fantastic opportunity. And I, I, I've been able to coach a, a few different CISOs and, and some other executives in, in very specific areas. Right? I, don't, you know, I clearly don't know everything, but within my area of expertise, it's the application of leadership principles. What I've called in, in the book that I'm actually working on that we talked about before, which is called From Tech to Exec. It's learning how to make the transition from an individual contributor to a leader. Uh, there are leadership programs that teach certain aspects of it. But again, you know, when you talk about the soft skills, I, I don't view those as soft skills. The ability to communicate, the ability to read people, the ability now in this world to understand cultural differences and how they play into how that other person perceives what you're saying, how you're sitting, the clothes that you're wearing. These are all parts of that journey. That, that need to be taken into consideration to be an effective leader. Now, I don't think they're going to make you a great leader, but they're certainly not going to uh, introduce um, additional roadblocks that you're going to have to navigate. And so that's that's tremendously important uh, as, as you move forward. So being able to coach them on understanding how to learn, right? It's kind of something we didn't learn in school, right? We were taught rote memorization and taught memorize these things, regurgitate on the test and move on, as opposed to how do we apply what's called the ultra learning you know, principles. You know, Scott Young wrote that in his, his book uh, of the same title. But how do we prioritize our learning activities in, in such a way that it yields the outcomes that we're looking for? And what are those outcomes? And what's the rate determining steps in those outcomes in which I have a particular skill that if I get will, will accelerate my growth in other areas. And if I don't get it, it's holding me back. And so the CISOs that I've been able to work with are are fantastic in their areas. They're deep subject matter expertise, um, very, very smart men and women that, that just, I'm a bit further down the path. And so helping them to understand how to communicate in languages that they don't speak, right? How do you speak CFO? How do you speak board? Uh, you know, how do you speak HR or, or people in culture? And these are all different aspects of leadership that an executive is going to have to have. And then once they become CISOs, now what? What do you need to learn to truly be good at your job? What does it mean to be a great CISO? Um, what skills are required to get you there? Right? Most don't think about that. They think I've arrived. I'm at the pinnacle of my career as a security professional. Where do I go from here? And, and, and my challenge, you know, much like Tim Grover said, that his, his clients in the NBA, this is where the journey starts. You've become a CISO. That's awesome. You can now begin the journey because it's it's there's a lot here. There's a lot to learn, and uh, it's going to be a whole lot of fun if you embrace that that continuous learning mindset. So, would you say that when people, as you mentioned, once they have arrived, and I love that way that you phrase it, would you <laughs> say that a lot of people think, well, I've kind of arrived now. I'm just going to sit back and just ride the wave. Would you say that that would be what most people's mindset is, but then they sort of are quick to realize, well, actually I've got to keep learning and evolving and adjusting. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the default position. And I don't think it's, it's, you know, unique to any specific individual. I think it's human nature. You know, we're, we're, we're sort of inertia creatures, right? Once we're, we're at rest, we tend to stay at rest, but once we're in motion, that's, it's pretty fun to stay in motion. 
And so I, I don't think the issue is one of capacity or capability, right? Because, you know, everybody has the same 24 hours in the day, which means if I can read, you know, five books a month, so can you. It's just I choose to use my 24 hours differently. Um, and, and so it's understanding well, what are your objectives, right? Is your objective to show up for work every day, do the bare minimum possible, and then go home? Right? That's it's not the kind of person I want to coach, and I would question that's not the kind of person any organization wants as a leader. Versus, I, I, I don't want to be good at my job, I want to be great at my job. I'm going to spend more time here than I spend with my family. I have everyone in the organization that's relying on me to, to make sound and timely decisions, to help make, um, to guide the business. It's their livelihood at stake, right? Mortgages, kids, partners, college, you know, tuitions, everything that goes with that. So there's a tremendous a tremendous weight on, on our shoulders as leaders. And so if you want to be truly good at, at, at what it is that you do, then let's help define that. What does that look like for you? What does success look like? What does, um, you know, the expansion of your, uh, you know, your knowledge and of your wisdom, what is that going to do? And then you can prioritize, well, here's the things I need to do to get there, right? It's, it's directed learning. It's not going to a class and, and memorizing some stuff. It's figuring out, well, how does finance and the knowledge of how money works, how does that factor into being a CISO? Because I guarantee you it does. How does reading people's body language, you know, factor into being a CISO? Because it absolutely does. Um, how does understanding how to pivot and, and be flexible? Um, how does understanding sales cycles, go-to-market strategies, um, business, um, you know, continuity, risks, alliances, partnerships, collaboration, all of those things are part of the CISO's world. But if you're not exposed to that corpus of knowledge, you won't ever think that your role goes beyond protecting the organization. That is an absolutely critical role, and it's the it's the reason CISOs exist. But it's not the only component, and there's there's a whole lot of other stuff there. So what I'm curious to know now is you've talked about all of these things, which I agree with. But what do you think needs to change from a leadership perspective in order for our industry to evolve? Um, yeah, it's really interesting. It's something I've thought about, excuse me, I've thought about um, quite a bit. And I think first we need to define evolution, right? What do you, I mean, what do you mean by that, right? Technology is advancing, capabilities are advancing, right? So we're we talking about technical evolution, or are we talking about not getting breached so much, right? Clearly that's that's going on a lot, or is it or is it other types of evolution that are unique to different industries, right? So you need to kind of pin that down first. Um, and, and the way I'll define it, right, is as, as, a, as a security practitioner and, and, you know, having been in the field for a long time, it's our ability to detect threats faster, uh, respond to those threats once we detect them faster, um, and then be able to perform those investigations to prepare for either, you know, some sort of litigation where, you know, we're going to get sued or there's going to be a class action lawsuit or we have, you know, breach of contract to worry about or there's some sort of government oversight or inquiry that we have to prep for. So there's, there's from the endpoints at deflection and detection all the way through to, you know, anticipation of litigation. And so the evolution of that becomes, can we reduce the amount of time? Uh, let me step back. Can we deflect more? Right. So do we understand attacker you know, methodologies sufficiently to be able to deflect an increasing number of attacks? Of the more sophisticated attacks that, that break through, can we detect those faster um, and then you know, subsequently perform investigations? So that's technical evolution. But then the understanding from a, a human you know, perspective is who are the human beings doing all of those things? And I mean, there's, there's I mean, 
I'm trying to remember the statistics, they escape me at the moment, because there's hundreds of thousands, basically, of, of you know, cybersecurity jobs in the world that are going unfilled because we just don't have the bodies to fill them. And, and so the danger there becomes, are we going to end up filling them with warm bodies as opposed to the right body, right? That the old adage of Mr. Right versus Mr. Right now. Um, and, and so that becomes part of the evolution is how do we educate um, this next generation of, of cybersecurity professionals better? And, and then the last piece of that is how do we get the right leaders in place to build the kind of culture that's going to attract the top talent that's going to allow the operationalization of the strategic vision? So you have to have the vision of how to protect the organization, the people to do it, the technology that allows them to do it. And, and all of those things, I think, hinge on the leader. I don't think there's there's ever been another time in history where technology has been more ubiquitous, right? Moore's law has essentially gone vertical. And, and so the distinguishing characteristic is becoming less and less about the technology and more and more about the creativity um, and the capabilities of the people using it. Um, and, and so I think that's where, in, in my mind, we need to see more of an evolution is the leaders that are part of the organizations understanding more about the human elements, about communication, uh, not treating those things as soft skills, but treating them as essential components to the success of the organization. Right. It's, I mean, the example that I, I actually use in my book is the Tower of Babel. Right. Whether you believe the, you know, the biblical story or not is irrelevant. Right of all of the things that could have been taken away from the people of Babel, it was their ability to communicate. So all construction came to a halt. Their ability to build the tower stopped, and it could have been, you know, it could have been any of you know the plagues. It could have been locusts. It could have been fire from the heavens. It could have been anything. Um, but the story God chose to use communication. So communication stops. Everything dries up. And, and and I think that's a great. Um, I think it's a great analogy to apply to business today is it's, 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 it, it is about skills and it is about who's got what capabilities, but it's more so about the ability to communicate upwards, downwards, side to side. Right. And so I think that's the evolutionary change that we need to see is stop treating these things like soft skills, make them um, absolutely uh, essential. Right. To students, um, student curriculum and of management training capabilities to understand how humans work, how to influence behavior, and, and most importantly, how do you communicate in a language that you may not uh, truly understand. So just lastly on that, I know you sort of mentioned it before around your book that you are still writing, I believe. So talk to talk to me a little bit more about tech to exec Just provide a little bit of a synopsis of uh, what can be covered in it so when it does get published, people can go and grab a copy. Yeah, this is so. This is the hardest book I've, I've written. I've, this is my third. My first two were textbooks about you know forensics investigations. One of them was you know Unix and Linux forensic investigations. The other one was data breach uh, preparation and response. And, and so this is this is a whole lot more research than I, I had anticipated, which is good, right? And I've I've got a, a coach who who taught me the concept of killing my darlings. And so uh, I, I write a chapter, I think it's good, and then I cut half of it out and go write it again. Um, so hopefully I get to the point of I, I move past the law of diminishing returns and actually come out with a good book at the end. Um, but the concept is is in my journey, going from an individual contributor to an executive, 
I, I learned a whole lot along the way. And um, fortunately, I had an executive coach who was, was absolutely amazing. It helped me um, pick up skills that, uh, that I didn't even know existed um, and read books that, uh, that I never even heard of. Now, without him, though, I would have never have made those connections. I didn't know who Patrick Lencioni was or John Maxwell. I didn't know who Simon Sinek was. I didn't know who Benjamin Nils Caceres was um, or Ed Cattrall. So in learning about the skills that were necessary in reading about that, I was able to expedite my journey. And so I wanted to find a, a way to communicate that to people going through the same thing. right? And, and it's, it's actually been something interesting as I've been talking to other executives about it or other people who are moving up the ranks um, or in, in doing research with other executives or other CSOs, I, I found that it's, it's a common theme, right? There, there really isn't any good literature on how do I make this transition? What are the things I need to be aware of? What are the, what are the good things that I need to do? And what are the not so good things I shouldn't do? Guiding that journey is what Tech2Exec is all about. It, it takes the reader from a place of, okay, I was an individual contributor yesterday, and now I'm going to be an executive tomorrow. The rules have changed. The game has changed. My peers have changed. Their motives have changed. Everything that made me good at my job has now changed. And, and it's a very unnerving feeling. Um, and to be honest, a bit frightening. And so understanding that you're not the only one you know, to go through that um, is, is kind of step one. And then understanding what does that upside-down pyramid look like? Because the more you move up uh, towards the, you know, where the base would, would, you know, historically be, the more you realize you don't know and, and the more you realize you have to learn. And then it goes into recommendations of books. It goes into recommendations about, uh, you know, ways to have conversations with, you know, with your peers and with your fellow executives about their success criteria and how you define what those relationships you know, need to look like. And then. You know, a bunch of recommendations about other books to read uh, because it's, it's clearly not going to be an all-encompassing book. Uh, but we're going to point you in a lot of directions about the books that I've seen. Right? I, read, I don't read five a month. I wish I did. I read about two to three books a month uh, and have for, I don't know, probably the last year, maybe 18 months. And so the books that provide the most insights and, and kind of the best uh, information to help you build that frame of reference quickly. And then understanding uh, how your brain works, how you learn as an adult. Uh, you know, what are the neurological aspects of that so that you're not just reading and forgetting five minutes later, right? But you're actually retaining uh, mm -hmm. greater portions of what it is that you read so that you can then uh, either recall it or, you know, be able to find it quickly and then apply it to whatever whatever situation you're in. So I'm probably 50% of the way there. I'm hoping to have it finished by the end of the year. Wow. Okay. I'm definitely will be getting a copy for myself. So, Chris, again, I really appreciate your time. I really enjoy chatting with you and talking through your experiences and your opinions. If people would like to ask you a question that perhaps I didn't ask you myself, how can I go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. You can email me. I am chris.pogue, P-O-G-U-E, like Vogue with a P, at nuix.com. I answer my email pretty much all the time, so... Happy to uh, happy to respond wherever you may be in the world. It's an honor and a pleasure to be able to help people out that are on the same path. Well, again, Chris, I really do appreciate it and your time today. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Carissa, and have a lovely rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in. 
As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.